Well, I mentioned last week that I wanted to start off the new year with a couple of sort of practical sermons. Uh, and again, thinking about a new year, uh, I wanted to help us think through some things that, you know, as, we, as you make evaluations of your life or maybe resolutions, things that people tend to do at the beginning of a new year. And so uh, today what I'm doing is I'm, I'm dusting off a message that I've given before, a message that I originally gave during our Ezra and Nehemiah sermon series, which was only about 14 months ago. So many of you were here uh, when, when I first gave this message. And I want to say this, I don't, I don't do reruns very often. Um, but when I do, I usually try to pick something that I haven't done in a long time so that you know, there's a good chance a lot of you haven't heard it. This one's not that old. It's only about 14 months ago that I, that I preached this. But I wanted to bring it back because I like this so much. I, I, I like this, this message. I like this concept, this idea so much. I found it to be personally so very helpful. And so I've titled the message here this morning, just to give you a clue of why I'm, what I'm talking about here, decision-making in faith. In other words, this, the whole idea here is how do we make decisions? How do you make big decisions? How do you do that with a biblical mindset? How do you do that in a godly way? How do we, how do we trust God and act in making decisions? And I, and I think it's so personally helpful, and I hope you'll find it very helpful, because making decisions is hard, right? Big decision-making can be very difficult to do, and life is full of them. You're going to be presented with all kinds of opportunities to make decisions. Uh, and this year, I, you know, for my family, I, I know I've got some doozies that are coming up for us this year. You know, we're, we've been preparing to, to, sit, to send our first, our oldest you know, child off to college. And so this is the, the, the next couple months, it's like we've got to decide where's he going. And more importantly, how are we going to pay for that, right? Uh, and I've got my youngest child entering high school this year. And if you are a CPS family, you know that the decision on where and how to get into a high school in this city is almost as ridiculously hard as getting into college and figuring out how to do that. Uh, and we've got, we've got other big family decisions to be making. I mean, th- this is, I know this is going to be a big year for us. And I'm sure that for many of you, you could say, yep, yeah, I'm in the same boat. And what happens again when we know that those things are coming up, it can, it can just be very overwhelming. It can be hard, as I said. And what I find in just pastoral counseling with people as they're bringing those kinds of decisions to me and looking for advice Oftentimes, those kinds of moments, those big decision moments, can be even crippling. And that's my biggest concern, because I don't think that the Bible would direct us to feel crippled ever in the way that we make decisions. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have really difficult things in front of us, but we don't need to be crippled. And the reason we don't need to be crippled, first and foremost, is because we have a good God who's in control of everything, right? And that good God in his goodness to us has given to us some really helpful tools, some helpful information about how we make those decisions as he indwells us with his Holy Spirit to act on that information. And so that's what this Sunday is all about, is looking at uh, a a, a small slice out of Ezra chapter 8. And if you're there, keep your finger about probably two pages over to your right. 
Nehemiah chapter 2, because we're going to look at sections of both. And while you're sticking your finger in the Nehemiah 2 passage, let me just uh, remind you what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's, 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 it's sort of part one and part two of one long overarching story. But let me tell you what, what's happening there. The story uh, in, in the book of Ezra is about the return of the Jews from their 70-year captivity in Babylon. So much of the Old Testament centers around this, this whole event where you know the, the judgment of God against the sin of Israel was finally laid down in that he divided the kingdom of Israel into two. There was Israel, there was Judah, and he, he, he let them know that because of their unrepentance, because of their sin, that they were going to be conquered. Uh, and so the northern half, the Israel, was conquered by the Assyrians, and then the southern kingdom of Judah lasted a little bit longer, but they were eventually conquered by the kingdom of Babylon. And for 70 years, they were in captivity there in Babylon. And then by God's promise and by his grace, they were allowed to come back. And so this is the story of the return of the Jews after that 70-year period. And the first seven chapters of the book of Ezra describe the first wave of people who came back. There were a few different waves of people. And we get to chapter 8, we, we sort of turn into, a, we sort of jump ahead, if you will, about 80 years to a second wave of people who are coming back. And this is when we see Ezra in the mix. Ezra is a part of that, that second wave, the person Ezra. And chapter 8 is, it's, it, it, if you read it in context of the whole book, it just feels like a lot of sort of names and, and details. It, it doesn't seem to have a lot of, like, juicy stuff in it. But what chapter 8 represents is it, it just gives the details about this about four-month period of time that they were to take this journey. It was going to take them about four months. They're walking, and they've got all this stuff, and they're carrying it you know, by, by mule or camel or whatever, and, and they've got to walk from Babylon back to Jerusalem, and it's going to take them four months to do so. And this is sort of the who, what, when, where, how, and why of that journey. Have any, any of you ever made a, a big move? Probably a few of you have. I, I have. Uh, I, I came here. I've, I've made several big moves in my life, but the last move was coming here to Chicago. We moved here in 2010 from Phoenix. So it's was, it was a cross-country move, right, to make that journey. And if you've ever done something like that, you know that there are two kinds of people and maybe you have those two kinds of people in your own family, maybe in, in your own marriage, right? Where, where, where they have very different outlooks about the way that they're going to go about planning for a big move like that. So my wife is one type of person. She's a planner. She makes lists. She likes to color code moving boxes and label everything about what room it's supposed to go in. And, and then she's got this master list of what, what's in each box and so that when she goes from, from, from packing all of that up and making sure that everything's there to getting to the other side, she knows how to unpack it all, where she can find everything. She's exceedingly organized in that way. That's one type of person. Maybe you're like that. Or maybe you're like me, which is the complete opposite of that. So, so no kidding. I, I made this joke 14 months ago, but it wasn't a joke. For me, it was, look, you start with a full house and an empty truck, and you end up with a full truck and an empty house you're good, right? So you just go. And, and when we get to the other side, we'll just reverse that order and we'll get it all in and, and we'll sort it out when we get there, right? 
So, so here's, what, here's what's kind of funny about that. I, a lot of you are nodding and kind of giggling. Like you, you identify either yourself with one of us or the other person. Uh, you recognize that, that those people frustrate the heck out of you. And that highlights the, the point. We, we can easily get frustrated by the other type of person. Planners can't stand the freewheelers, right? And freewheelers get really bogged down by the planning. So when it comes to making decisions, you might be one type of person or the other, and that might greatly impact the way you go about the process. And that's what we see here in Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra is a bit more of the faith-sided, freewheeling kind of guy. Nehemiah is going to come on the scene a little bit later, and Nehemiah is a little bit more of the, the planner type. right? And we're going to look at how both of them go about making the big decisions that they make. And, and interestingly, the same kind of decision. And ask this question, which is better? Is it better to be guided more by, I'm just trusting it all by faith? Or is it better to say, no, we're going to plan this thing out. We're going to be strategic about this. And the answer to that question is going to ultimately be, neither's better. They're both just kind of the way God wires His people. And that we'll need each other because we need faith and we need some strategic planning. So, Ezra chapter 8. Would you look down at verse 21? The lead up to this is the king of Persia who has taken over Babylon. So they're now the, they're now the, the overlords, if you will. He's, he's granted by, by God's uh, movement in him, he's granted to Ezra the ability to go back and to, and to take a bunch of people and a bunch of materials to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. And here's what Ezra says in verse 21. As they're heading out on the journey, he says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek him, seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. This is the interesting part. He says, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So bottom line is this. You've got Ezra being told by the king, you can go back. And the king says to him, you've got a big journey ahead of you. It's a dangerous journey ahead of you. I'll send an army with you to protect you and your people as you make this trek. And Ezra's response is, I was ashamed to ask for that because I had already told him, God's got our back. Our God is powerful. Our God will lead us there. And so he said, I didn't want to ask or accept the offer of the Persian army's escort. Now, Nehemiah chapter 2. 
Same kind of situation. King Artaxerxes has now granted Nehemiah, who is actually the king's cupbearer, granted him the ability to go back as well, as Nehemiah has heard that Jerusalem needs a lot of help, that there's a lot of, a lot of difficulty there. It's still in ruin. He wants to go back and rebuild. And this is what we read in chapter 2, verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And, the king, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they, let me, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the, of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now look, look at verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So catch this. Basically, you've got two faithful leaders of the Jewish people who are being able to go back. And one says to the king, I don't want your army. I don't need your army. I can't ask for that because I've already told you my God's got our back. And the other one says, hey, I'll take the army. (laughs) Which is better? And this also seeks a bigger question. What's the balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility as we live out the Christian life, as we make decisions, as we trust Him for how things ought to unfold and what we ought to do? What's the balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility? I don't need the army. God's sovereign. I'll take the army. Let me give you a couple of principles back in Ezra chapter 8. Flip back over there. This is Ezra's processes for making decisions by faith. Now remember, Ezra, we've already identified as kind of more of the faith guy than the planning strategy guy. doesn't mean he's void of those things, but he's more of the faith guy than Nehemiah is. Look at, again, verse 21, and here's the first point. The first thing is that Ezra's process begins with faithful dependence on God in prayer and fasting. He begins with faithful dependence on God in prayer and fasting. Verse 21, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. If you look down again at verse 23, So we fasted and we implored our God for this and He listened to our entreaty. Here's the practical principle. Always pray up your decisions. Always pray up your decisions and do that first before you do anything else. Okay? What were the questions at hand and what decisions needed to be made here? Again, Ezra's about to make this massive movement of people and goods over a stretch that was about 900 miles. 
So if you think about that in, in relatable terms, that would be like you walking with a group of 5,000 people and all the goods and possessions that you have, walking from Chicago to Houston. Or Chicago to Boston or Denver, right? Just think of that kind of distance. About 900 miles. And again, he's got about 5,000 people to account for, including men, women, and children, plus whatever possessions they're able to bring with them and this vast amount of gold. They're going back to, to, to restart uh, the, the temple worship in Jerusalem and all of the artifacts of the temple are with them and they're all made out of precious metals. So you're about to take this journey. You think about an old Western movie, you know, like all the gold's on the train, right? And what happens when the train's out in the middle of nowhere? That's where the bandits are going to show up. That's, that's what they're about to step into. A very similar type of situation. In the ancient world, that kind of travel would be, would be even more dangerous than we can even conceive of now because they didn't have interstate highways. There weren't, you know, highway patrol officers along the way or rest stops or, 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 I mean, it was just, you're in the middle of the, the wilderness for four months. And all of this, again, for Ezra, without the protection of an army. That's not a light thing. So what's his first move? He says, we need to pray. We need to fast, and we need to pray. Now it's interesting here that, that fasting and prayer go hand in hand and are a part of what Ezra is asking of the people to do. Praying, I think for the most, most of us, we say, well, that, that makes sense. Why, why are we praying? We pray because we, we're, we're, we're saying we're dependent on you, God. We, we know that you're in control. We have to trust you. We're asking you for the safety of this journey. We're asking you to accomplish what you, you seem to be working out here and sending us back. That makes sense. What does the fasting represent? And how many of us fast? Fasting is something that goes hand in hand with prayer. But it, it's, it's sort of a, a, if you will, sort of a, a deeper step of saying, Lord, not only do I recognize and I declare that I depend on you, but I'm also stating to you, God, that I see you as more important. You're the provision of my life. You, you take priority over my most fundamental priorities, like food. I find you, God, to be more important to my nourishment and health and well-being than even my food and my drink. That's what fasting ultimately is declaring. It's a dependence upon God that, that, that puts me in a position of complete and utter dependence because I've, I've placed myself in a position of total weakness, believing that God is my ultimate priority. And this is what he calls them to do. It's about first priority. So, so in terms of application, the question we have to ask ourselves is this. When you're faced with big things in life, who do you run to first? Are you coming before God, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the, the one who holds your life in his hands, the one who directs all things according to his sovereign will and good purposes, or do we go to somebody else? Or to some other thing? And if we're going to go to somebody else or some other thing, we have to seriously ask this question. In comparison to the Lord God, are they qualified to counsel? 
That doesn't mean that we don't ever go to other people, and we'll see that in a minute. But as a first priority, God, I've got to depend on you. And that's what Ezra does here. It's interesting that uh, just before we get to the book of Ezra, we're in the the books of the Chronicles. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, we see Asa, who was one of the kings, and he was one of the reasons why they got put in captivity in the first place. The kings were disobedient to the Lord. And it says in chapter 16 of 2 Chronicles that in the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet. I think that's kind of gross. Probably like gout or something. And it says that this disease became severe. And then there's this judgment statement that comes after that statement in, in, in verse 12. And it says, Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but he sought help from physicians. They say, So the Bible's telling us we shouldn't seek help from physicians. No, that's not what it's saying. But it's saying that his first move was not seeking the Lord but rather seeking the counsel and the help of men. And for that, there's judgment on him. Because it shows, again, his trust. It shows his mindset. It shows his priority. He didn't seek the Lord. Ezra, thank the Lord, was a very different kind of man. And there's a very good example here for us. Your first priority Faithful dependence upon God in prayer and fasting. Here's your second priority. Number two, then faithful stewardship and use of what God provides. So first, we're going to seek the Lord. Second, we're going to look around and say, what have you given, God? And how can I steward that? How can I use that faithfully, recognizing that it's from you? Here's the principle. Recognize that God often works through human agency. He does often work through our planning and our strategizing and our plain old hard work and our efforts. So if you're one of those strategic planning type people, kudos to you. That's a gift from God. This is the way that God often works. Ezra might be more of a spiritual guy as compared to Nehemiah as a practical one, but it doesn't mean he wasn't practical. It doesn't mean he didn't recognize this. Look at how he used available means to aid in his decision-making. Chapter 8, look at verse 15. He says, I gathered them to the river. This is all the peoples. He gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava. And there we camped three days. And I reviewed the people and the priests. And I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, and Elnathan, Jarib, El Nathan and Nathan, if you're uh, uh, named Nathan, you have a very popular name in this period of time. Zechariah and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and again El Nathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Ido, the leading man at the place Casaphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casaphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. Now let me, let me just try to explain what was happening here a little bit. So they're about to go back and they've got all this stuff for the temple and they look around. He takes stock of what's been provided here and he realizes that uh, we don't have any Levites. And if you're going to go back and worship God in the temple, 
you need the Levites because the Levites were the ones who performed all of the temple service. It, it's, it, they were sort of like the, they were the staff, if you will, of the church. They were the, 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 the priesthood and the helpers that would make sure that there was actually services that were going on. And so he realizes, we don't have any of these people. So what does he do about it? Well, he says, well, you know what? I know a guy. I know a guy, this Ido guy. And he says, some of you need to go over to Ido and you need to let him know what's going on and how we need some of these Levites and have Ido hook us up. And so that's what they do. They go over there to put a little bit of, sort of strong arm pressure on them. Verse 24. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering of the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. So we've got the, the Levites, they show up. And then what does he do? Well, then it's, he takes stock of all of the items that they have. He makes a list of the temple um, artifacts and the vessels. What's that all about? Well, he's weighing it out to ensure accountability, right? He's weighing it out to ensure integrity. So in other words, kind of like my wife, when, when, you're, when you're loading up the moving van, make a list of what's in this box so that when we get to the other side and we open it up, we know what's in there, what's supposed to be in there. And if something isn't in there, then we know that the movers were crooked. They took something, right? Or whatever. That's what they're doing. This ensures stewardship. So he prays, but he takes stock of the people. He takes stock of the goods. Verse 29. And he says, guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the head of the father's houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. And so the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. So he's saying, I'm now leaving you guys in charge to make sure that all this happens properly. So what's he doing? He's saying, you know, on the one hand, I'm not asking for Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, to provide me for an army, but I am recognizing what God has provided, and God has provided Levites. God has provided protectors. God has provided those who can make an account. And so he implements them and encourages them to say, look, guard the goods. Now, are we seeing Ezra now become this like super planny guy? The strategy type guy? Or is he walking by faith? Well, he's doing both. He's walking by faith and he's using human means as well by faith. Look at the end of verse 18. And by the good hand of our God, or excuse me, and the good hand of our God was on us, and they brought us this man of discretion. There's this provision and this recognition. God did this. God did this. And it's a good lesson for the, the sort of more spiritual types among us, the less logical types among us. Just because you're walking by faith, don't despise the things that God has provided you. Take a look at it. Sort it out. And if you're not very good at that, get some help from somebody who's really good at that. But God uses both. So we're praying. We're, we're looking around and we're trusting that we can use the things that God has provided to help us to make decisions and to act on those decisions. Thirdly, then, we're also recognizing that there has to be faithful trust in God's power to work apart from our means. 
So we might look around and say, here's what God has provided. There's a whole lot of things that God doesn't seem to have provided yet. There are things that are not available to us readily. They're apart from our means, and yet still faithful trust in God's power to work. So all the practical, logical types have felt vindicated after the last point. Here's the stretching principle for you. And here's where the faith people are going to feel a lot more comfortable. Sometimes we need to turn down available means. Sometimes we won't have them. Sometimes we need to turn them down and trust God to work apart from them. Again, in verses 21 to 23, we see the king says, look, here's an available means. You can have an army. And Ezra says, no, I'm not going to ask. In fact, it says he was ashamed to ask. Why was he ashamed to ask? Was he afraid of Artaxerxes? I don't think so. Again, I think it's because he, he feared the Lord. I, I've already told you that God has our back. I've made a bold statement I've made a missional statement to you, our exercises. You're not even a believer, but I'm telling you who our God is. And I'm telling you what our God is like. And I'm telling you that our God has promised that he's going to deliver. And so if I've told you that, how can I now then go back on that a little bit and say, yeah, but we'll take a little bit of protection if you got it. Right? He didn't want to sound wishy-washy. This is about displaying his level of trust in God's sovereignty and care. And this is a helpful guide for us too. When should we reject human means? When should we reject reason and logic? Well, I think it's when doing so would be a poor reflection on the nature and the character of the God we proclaim. When doing so would be a poor reflection on the gospel. What would this say about God if I cheated on this one a little bit? probably familiar with Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott in the 1950s was a, a young man married who had this sense that God was calling him to go to this particular tribe in South America and proclaim the gospel to them. And it was an unreached people group. It was, it was not only unreached in terms of the gospel, but unreached in terms of civilization itself. And there was concern about whether or not these people would even be receptive to outsiders. There was Talk of cannibalism and, and, and violence. This was a group of people that did not want to be intruded upon. And yet Jim Elliott said, you know what? I believe that God is calling me to go and to preach the gospel and to, and to, and to, and to, and to bring Jesus to this people group. And everybody said, you're nuts. This is not safe. This is a bad idea. You're going to fly in there. You've got a wife to think about, right? You've got a little baby to think about. Like, this is not a good idea. And yet... From Jim Elliott's perspective, in his, his case was, look, I, I believe, A, the Lord has called me to do this. B, that he's called all of us to go into the, the world and to make disciples of, of all peoples. I've got to go. He had this strong conviction that it would say something more about his distrust in the power and the name of God to, to back out than it would to protect himself to do the logical thing. And the crazy thing about that is, Jim Elliott goes in there, and what everybody said was going to happen, happened. They killed him. And so all the logical types are probably thinking, man, see, <laughs> you got to plan better than this. And yet we've, 
lived long enough to see the legacy of what Jim Elliott began to do with that people group, to know that his wife went back down there and said, hey, I'm the wife of the one whom you killed, and this is what he was coming here to do, and she preached Christ to them, and the whole tribe got saved. Sometimes we have to have faithful trust in God's power to work apart from our means. Uh, there's so many examples of this I could give you. For sake of time here, I've got to be careful here. But, but, but just a, one example in my own life that I, I want to share with you because I think you know, probably not many of you are thinking about going off and flying a plane into the jungle, right? But you might be thinking about just how do I make regular everyday decisions that face us? And, and here's one that I, that I made uh, with this principle in mind and, and saw God's provision come through in. And it was, again, back to moving here. It's a very interesting thing because moving here from, from where we were in Phoenix, we were in, a, we were in a large church. We were in a, a, a very well-resourced church. We owned a home. Uh, you know, everything that we had was sort of very comfortable and, and knowing that coming here was, was going to upend a lot of that, one of the things that was most difficult and interesting, it was difficult for others, it wasn't so difficult for me, but, but, but people were asking me, like, what's it going to be like when you get there? It's, isn't it a very expensive area? Are you going to be able to, to have a house there? How, how is the church going to pay you? And the funny thing about that was, in all of the conversations that I had had with the deacons and the search committee and others here at the church over the period of months leading up to this decision to come and be the pastor, not one time was salary ever discussed. What happened was, we came here in December that year, and we were taken around, my wife and I, just, and we were shown some real estate, and we walked away thinking, oh my goodness, we're never going to be able to get a house out there. But salary never came up. And people would ask me that. Do you know what they're going to do? How are they going to take care of your family? And I'd say, you know what? I don't know. However, I, I, I was sort of like Ezra. I'm ashamed to ask. Because I wanted to trust that if God really wanted us to be here, that amidst all the other things that he was going to reveal about that, that was going to be one of the ways that he would show. He would take care of that. And it wasn't until the church actually voted on and called me to be the pastor and called me up and said, we've unanimously called you to come and be our pastor that the next day they sent me a piece of paper that had for the very first time a number on it. And in that, God revealed, you know what? I'll take care of you. And he did. And he has. Sometimes we have to trust in God's power to work apart from the things we can plan. And finally this, faithful praise and thanksgiving for God's hand in everything. God, I'm going to pray this up. I'm going to use the things that you've given. I'm going to trust you for the things that I can't see. And ultimately, I'm going to praise you and thank you for your good hand in all of that. Here's the principle. Believe that God provides and protects. Believe that God provides and God protects always. Look for His hand and give Him glory. Ezra, go back. Okay, we get to the river. We don't have a lot going on here, do we? Alright, what has God provided? Well, He provided the Levites that they didn't have. And in verse 18, He says, the good hand of our Lord provided what we needed. They weren't sure about the safe travel, but God provided and they got there. 
And in verse 22, he says, the good hand of the Lord provided what we needed. The provision of their possessions and their items of worship. Verse 31, the good hand of the Lord provided all that we needed. And I think when making decisions and trusting God, here's what we have to know. God sometimes works in miraculous ways. And sometimes God works in really mundane ones. He works in the miraculous and He works in the mundane. But He works through all of it and is asking us to recognize that and to thank Him and to acknowledge Him for what He does and how He does it. I asked a question earlier, what's the balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in the Christian life? There's a really good quote from C.S. Lewis that I want to share with you. C.S. Lewis is always a good guy to run to when you're looking for answers to good, deep theological questions. Here's what he says about God. He says, He could, if He chose, repair our bodies miraculously without food or medicine. Or He could give us food without the aid of farmers and bakers and butchers. God could convert the unbelievers without missionaries. Instead, He allows soil and weather and animals and muscles and minds and the wills of men to cooperate in the execution of His will. God, said Pascal, instituted prayer in order to lend His creatures the dignity of causality. You heard that phrase before? Pascal? Dignity of causality. We have the dignity of, of, of actually causing things to happen is what he's saying. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, but not only prayer, whenever we act, he lends us that dignity. Is it not really stranger nor less strange that my prayers should affect the course of events than my other actions should do so? That's kind of a crazy thought. Have you ever thought about that? God, you're in control of all things. You, 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 you see it all. You've ordained it all. And yet I'm going to pray and I'm going to act and somehow that's going to have an, an impact on all this. God, you've already got it all figured out. Isn't that weird? C.S. Lewis is saying, it is kind of weird. But this is the way God works. He says, they've not advised or changed God's mind. In, in other words, this, these prayers and these actions haven't changed his overall purpose. But that purpose, God's purpose will be realized in different ways according to the actions, including the prayers of his creatures. So what Lewis is reminding us of here is what the Bible shows us from beginning to the end. Our God is a Father who is actively involved. He's actively involved with his children and his creation, and in his all-encompassing knowledge and wisdom and power, he gives us the dignity of causality through which our actions and our prayers really do affect the course of events and serve his ultimate sovereign purposes. How does that work? I have no idea. I also don't know how the Trinity works. I also don't know how the hypostatic union of Christ being fully God and fully man works. I don't know how that works, but I know this. God tells me it works. It works. So practical people, Spiritual people, take notice. Stop despising one another and start believing you might need each other. 
Because us, us faith people, we need to be grounded a little bit with some thinking and some logic. And you logic types, you need to be, you need to be motivated a little bit with some faith sometimes, right? And finally, I would say this. Don't be hasty in your decisions. Don't be hasty. Pray. Take stock. Trust. Rest. But also, don't be crippled by them. Don't be crippled by them. God is in control. So if you have decisions to make this year, pray about them. Use the means and knowledge God has made available to you. Trust Him for the things that you can't control. And give Him the opportunity to do the things that only He can do. And then give Him thanks. As He accomplishes His purposes, even through the decisions and the actions that you're going to take. And then rest. And if you want proof that God works both through His sovereign heavenly ways and through the actions of men, you have to look no further than to this table. I want to end on on this. Let's, Let's have the elders come forward here. And let's take communion. What does this table represent? This table represents God's sovereign purposes being accomplished through His own decree and the actions of men, even sinful men. The death of Jesus Christ was God's Eternally decreed and ordained planned to save sinful humanity from themselves. Knowing that the wages of sin is death, He would send His perfect Son to live the perfect life of obedience that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve to die because as the perfect Son of God, He could take the punishment, death, and overcome it. That is God's sovereignly, eternally decreed will. How did it happen? How did the cross happen? It happened by the decisions and the actions and the will of sinful people who who, who knew or cared nothing about God's ultimate plan. All they wanted to do was say, this man needs to be killed. And God's ordained and worked through all of that to accomplish what God had always intended to accomplish. And so we take the elements this morning. We remember that. We remember Christ's death for our sin. We remember the forgiveness that we have. We remember the, the, the restoration to relationship that we have with the Father. And we remember that this continual act is a constant reminder that not only gives us that assurance of salvation, but gives us the power to live in knowing that we can act by faith, Trusting even in in our logic and our reason and all the things that God gives, knowing that He, because of His love for us, is in control and will work it all out according to His sovereign plan and purpose. We need to be reminded of that. And so we come to the table. Brothers, would you serve?